to uh, call you back from your coffee and connection time with some abrupt news. And that is uh, that it is tax time. Boo, says the crowd. Yeah, I seldom like to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, but we're coming up on income tax season. The mountain of paperwork, the hassle of remembering the things that you receipts that you put all over the place, penalties for late filing. Now, people like to say that there are only two certainties in life. What are those two certainties? Death and taxes, and both have been with us for a very, very, very long time. So, the first recorded income taxes actually were uh, of any systematized understanding that we have records of were way back in ancient Egypt. So, the pharaohs had a few little building projects going on, and in order to fund those, they decided that they would systematize the collection of revenues and put that towards their building project. So around 3000 BC, we have the Pharaoh's tax coming in play. And uh, there's early archeological evidence for complaining right away about taxes and the burden thereof. Uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, there's little inscriptions about, ah, my stupid country went to war and now I have to pay taxes to fund this thing. It's ridiculous. So really not much has changed since the ancient world. The ancient world was very, very familiar with people in authority taking what was yours, a portion of what you produced or gathered, and then giving that away or funding uh, the construction of projects in different ways. The United Kingdom was the first modern economic uh, state with a tax system that had a sliding scale. So if you made less, you paid less. If you made more, you paid more. First introduced by the great British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger in his budget of 1798. He had to find a way to pay for weapons to fight Napoleon in the French Revolutionary War. Though historians are quick to note that Napoleon did not institute a tax on his people to fund the war, just the British. And I love the picture from this tax era. The taxman cometh, breathing fire, striking fear into the heart of the worker. And the picture is probably a little bit uh, hyperbolic because the tax rate started at 1.2% on your total income. And the very top tier of earners in 1792 were taxed at 10%. So hardly a burden compared to modern uh, analogies. But the English income tax was highly unpopular. Listen to this complaint by a naval officer in 1799. It is a vile, Jacobean, jumped up, jack in office piece of impertinence. Is a true Briton to have no privacy? Are the fruits of his labor and toil to be picked over farthing by farthing by the pimply minions of bureaucracy? Can I get an amen? Yeah. In Canada, we followed decently quickly on the heart of England, and in 1917, as the First World War was underway, in 1917, conscription was introduced, and then right after that, income tax was introduced to f as a funding strategy for the war efforts. And the Minister of Finance at the time said, I have placed 
it in place as a temporary measure. Definitely reviewed by the finance and government of the day with a view of judging whether it is suitable to the conditions which then prevail. And apparently prevail those conditions have because 103 years later, we're still paying income tax. And the original form has gone from six pages to, of the Income Tax Act to 1,412 pages of documentation. The original form had just 23 lines that you had to fill out, and now we're up over like 300 lines or something. And like that British naval officer, most of us still say, I don't want the fruits of my labor picked over dollar by dollar by the pimply minions of bureaucracy. Income taxes. Well, why bring all of this up? We're studying the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And this season at Jericho, we're going to meet a man today in Mark chapter 2 who collected income tax. That was his vocation for a living. And then, as is the case now, people who do the bidding of the state and collect are not always the most popular, well-loved people in town. But we're going to see today that Jesus has a very different interaction and experience with this man. Because Jesus is always about the business of calling and including those who are on the margins of society and those who are considered unloved or unlovely by our culture and the dominant culture of the day. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to Mark chapter 2. And in Mark chapter 2, we'll be looking at the account of Levi in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Last week, Pastor Wally led us through some examples of Jesus' work and ministry of healing. And Jesus speaking passionately and powerfully about the definition and need that all of us have for healing in all aspects of our lives. And then right after that account, right after the account of the man who was paralyzed and who was healed by Jesus, Mark gives us insight into the calling of one of Jesus' early disciples, a man by the name of Levi, or Matthew, as he is called in other gospel accounts. We're going to pick up the narrative in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Mark's gospel says, Then Jesus went out onto the lakeshore again, and he taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collection booth. Now, we need to pause for a moment here and think about this whole tax collection thing because it worked quite differently in the first century than it works today. Essentially, in the first century, the Jews lived under Roman occupation. So they had to pay taxes to Caesar, a tax that was collected and administrated by local people. And what these people would do is they would bid on a territory that Rome would give them and assign them, and they became a licensed government contractor ready and able to collect the taxes from that territory. And then they were responsible to set up their little shop and then collect the taxes 
And whatever the amount that was set for them by Rome, they had to send those shekels back to head office. But anything above and beyond what they collected of the minimum rate, they could put in their own pocket, and they could also then pay for the capital investment that they had made for their little territory. So this is how they made their livelihood, the outlay of capital getting returned by charging more than the minimum amounts. And Rome set no restrictions on how high they could go. And Rome also gave them the local Roman garrison of soldiers to help enforce their collection of the taxes if necessary. So the whole system was set up to be rife with corruption and entrepreneurial individuals who wanted to make a buck. Remember, the Jewish people were already paying to support and maintain the system of temple worship in Jerusalem through the various tithes or offerings that were outlined in the Old Testament. And then on top of this, the Roman government comes along and says, we need our cut as well. And so some scholars estimate that people's incomes were tacked as high as 40 to 60% of having to be given in taxes. And so this was not something that people in the first century willingly engaged or participated in. But Levi comes along, pays for his territory around Caesarea, which is an entry, it's a good territory, it's right at the entry point, and Caesarea is a, a city of commerce and trade. And so he pays for this, gets his little taxation booth set up, and is ready as people go and come into the new territory of Herod Agrippa to stop them and say, cough over some cash. And so it's not mysterious at all that tax collectors were despised by their fellow citizens. Ancient historians record the general view on tax collectors. First of all, everybody knew they were dishonest and corrupt. The system was actually set up to encourage that. Then on top of that, for people who were Jewish, their vocation as a tax collector required them to be involved in the exchange of money with people who were not Jews, and so therefore they were always considered unclean and unfit and unable to enter in or participate in worship in any way, shape, or form. Their job required that of them. And so the Talmud, the ancient Jewish law, lumped them in, not just with the unclean, but it put them in with the category of murder, murderers and robbers and said, under no circumstances should you allow a tax collector to be a witness in a court of law. Their word is not reliable. They were not welcome in the temple in any way. But worst of all, so it's not hard for us to see why they were some of the most hated people in their day and time. But Jesus comes along, passes by Levi's booth, and says perhaps the most surprising thing that people would have expected him as a respected teacher and healer and rabbi to say. Look at Mark Chapter 2, verse 14. 
Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Be, become my disciple. And so Levi gets up and follows Jesus. Pause for a minute and think about that. What does this mean for Jesus to invite Levi into his entourage? From the perspective of a bystander, this is not a wise move for Jesus to undertake. Jesus, by this time, has a reputation as a pious, well-liked rabbi. And here he is, getting up and close and personal with a dishonest, non-pious, disreputable, unpatriotic sinner. The bystanders in this encounter would have likely expected Jesus to pass by the booth, and if he stopped to bring himself up to full height and rain down a tirade of judgment on Levi for all of his clearly unjust and unholy activities, because that's what a good religious person would do. But Jesus does something quite surprising. He doesn't just engage with Levi and then go on his way. He says to Levi, I want you to follow me. Become my disciple. Jesus extends an invitation into a relationship that radically transcends Levi's social status. It extends beyond the differences in their behavior or their approach to religion. Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And we should pause here and ask for Levi and also for us today, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? In John chapter 1, right after Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer, and John declares Jesus to be the anointed one, the chosen one of God, Messiah, come to save and set people free. A few of the people who are at the baptism are curious, and they work up the courage to go and talk to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, tell us more about you. Where are you staying? What's going on? And Jesus says to them, come and see. Come and learn. Come, walk with me. Learn to be my disciple. Come. Let's start moving together in a direction and see what transformation happens along the way. And in this moment, for Levi, transformation doesn't happen instantaneously like it does or is recorded in other places. Jesus simply says to Levi, come, follow me. Fall in line with me. Learn to walk with me. I'm going to show you what my life is like 
And Levi has to make a choice. In the record of the calling of another disciple, in John chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus encounters a man named Philip. And Jesus says to Philip, come, follow me. Same invitation. And Philip doesn't immediately fall in behind Jesus. He actually goes to look for his friend, Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you'll never believe it. I met someone who's so radically different than anyone I've ever encountered before. I think we've found the person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And he invited me to come and follow him. And Nathaniel, instead of saying, oh, that's interesting, Philip, let's go and check it out. Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip just repeats Jesus' invitation to Nathaniel. He says, well, why don't you come and see for yourself? And Nathaniel did. And Nathaniel also heeded the call to follow Jesus. See, here's what I want us to catch. Following Jesus is not something that's automatic. It doesn't just happen to you because you happen to choose to go to church or you read your Bible or you pray. Following Jesus is something that you are invited into and then you choose to engage with that invitation. But the paradoxical mystery is that in the grace of God, you choose it because God first demonstrated how much God loves you. And God extended that invitation for you and for everyone to come and see. So many times in Mark's gospel, Jesus isn't getting into debates and discussions about religion. He simply says, come, come and see. Explore it. Figure it out. And lest you and I miss it in Mark chapter 2, the only thing that changes for Levi in this moment is his posture toward Jesus. Jesus has invited him to come and see, and Levi said yes in a moment in time. And their lives and their hearts are radically reoriented. As an example of this, another tax collector in Luke chapter 19, Jesus meets a man who's named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus realizes who Jesus is. He comes down from his tree. He invites Jesus into his home. And when he realizes and says yes to that follow me invitation that Jesus gives to him, he says, it's my moment. I'm going to give away half of my wealth to people who are poor. And if I have cheated, I love the word, if I've cheated, people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Zacchaeus has a moment. And Jesus says in response to him, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. But with Levi... 
nothing quite that dramatic happens that we're aware of anyways. He simply makes an internal decision. Jesus extends the call, come, follow me. And Levi says, all right, how bad could it be? And he doesn't do this that we know of by cleaning his life up, getting his act together. He just has a willingness to step out and explore what it is that this man Jesus is inviting him into. This is the one, Jesus, who can heal people from sickness. This is the one who can touch people's lives and release them from the oppression of the evil one. Is this one also able to heal the sickness that I feel in my soul, maybe Levi is asking? Is this the one who can answer some of the questions of the deepest longings of meaning and purpose that all of us wrestle with at some point in our journey? And here's what I want us to pay attention to. The invitation that Jesus makes to come and follow him is not just an invitation that's extended to the first century disciples. It's also for you and me today. Because saying yes to Jesus does not mean somehow that you have got your life altogether and cleaned up and that then that qualifies you to follow Jesus. Saying yes to follow Jesus doesn't mean you have all of your intellectual doubts and questions answered. Saying yes to Jesus means simply that your orientation toward God has fundamentally changed. And you're saying yes to the invitation to explore. And some of you might be listening, and something about Jesus, something about this invitation to journeying through your life with Jesus is compelling to you. And you don't know anything more than that. You have lots of questions still. You wrestle with things. And for you today, you might be thinking, I'm curious, I don't know if I'm ready to make a big decision about Jesus. But maybe you could reframe it and say, you know, I might be willing to make a small one. I might be willing to take that next step of exploring, of asking those questions. Today, Jesus is inviting you, come and see. The oldest and simplest prayer of the church is a simple one, which we already sang about this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, to explore who Jesus is, what life with him is like. And for you today, you might be stirred in your heart to say yes to that. And I want to be clear about a few implications for you. The first one is that it does not mean that magic Jesus will waltz into your life and all of your problems will disappear. But it does mean that the rest of your life will look different. Because you're starting to explore something. And I am also here to assure you that the other thing that will happen when you take that step is you will gain fellow pilgrims on that journey who are sitting here in this room. 
many of whom have made that decision before you, and they will tell you that when they said yes, it was worth it. And they'll help you to walk that journey out. And this is what's so compelling to me about this text, is that Jesus comes into Levi's life. Jesus seeks him out. Jesus turns aside from his journey. And Jesus is the one that does the asking and the inviting. And then Levi is the one who has to think about and respond. Following Jesus for Levi likely meant leaving his tax collection business. His booth was probably going to go away, get auctioned off to another bidder. And this was lucrative business. But for Levi, there's something about Jesus that he finds irrepressible. And he decides to do two things. The first is he says yes to Jesus' invitation to come and see. And the second thing Levi does is that he extends the circle. He wants others to come and see what he is seeing. Let's keep reading in Mark 2, verse 15. Later, the text says, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. There's a dinner party at Levi's home, and Jesus is like the guest of honor. In some ways, he's even the host. But again, this is scandalous because sharing a table together is another level of intimacy, of welcoming someone into your space. And here, again, the bystanding crowd looks and says, a holy person like Jesus is eating and religious people. The teachers and interpreters of God's law get wind of this. And notice what they do. They don't actually go and ask Jesus, Jesus, why are you doing this? Look what they do. They're a bit passive aggressive in their approach. We'll meet the Pharisees again next week. But they pull aside a few of Jesus' disciples, some lower-hanging fruit, and say, when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with, and look at their choice of words, such scum? They are not unclear in their position on the non-humanity and the non-worthiness of the tax collectors and the other sinners. I can remember when I worked uh, in high school in the restaurant industry and I had a concerned believer pull me aside one day and ask if they thought it was a good idea for me as a young, impressionable teenager, to be working in such a secular, godless environment. They became concerned, and maybe rightfully so, that I would become tainted by the world, and it would be best if I could quit my job and come to Bible study on Wednesday nights. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd, bad influences, and maybe you've heard similar things. I can think of a church who hired a youth pastor and told the youth pastor explicitly, your job, we pay your salary to keep our kids from hanging out with those people. 
on Friday nights. If you let any of those bad influences come in our youth group, that's it, you're done. Or the more subtle side-eye approaches to other kids in Kids at the Ridge who don't look the part, dress the part, or maybe memorize the Bible verse as quick as your kids do because they have no Christian background whatsoever. Or the people who, oh, horror of horror, swear on their social media accounts. I have begun to lose track of how many times well-meaning Christian people come up to me and say, why are you hanging out with them? Why do we let those two people who live across the street from us smoke on our property? We're spending all kinds of money on this building, get rid of them. Why do you work on Mondays at a wine shop? You really think that's a wise idea to hang out with those kinds of people? And to an extent, I'm sympathetic with the perspective. There is always a risk factor when you engage with people that negative peer pressure might exert yourself on you. And if you're in a place of weakness, then you might fall into sin. It might be unwise for you. And there's certainly times when there are boundaries that you need to put up in your life and steer clear of people who are not good influences on you. I think wisely about people in our congregation who have wrestled with addiction and have just said, I cannot hang out with those friends right now because I'm not in a place of strength to be able to do that. But far too often, I hear this as an excuse driven by fear and an unholy need for safety, which can become bound together and oppose the mission and the ministry that God has given to us here in this place and that we see modeled in the life of Jesus. Jesus has a fairly pointed response for people who are worried that by hanging around with unclean people, he's going to be dragged down to their level. Mark chapter 2, verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, both the Pharisees and his disciples, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think that they are righteous, but those who know, who are aware that they are in a place of need. See, don't hear what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying, oh, the Pharisees are healthy. I don't need to worry about them. What Jesus is saying is that table fellowship is defined not by your religious history, but by your willingness to express your need for grace. By calling Levi to discipleship, Jesus is redefining grace. He eats with the socially and religiously unacceptable. And when he does this, Jesus is reinterpreting God's grace and saying God's grace is extended not to a select few who believe that they deserve it, but it's extended to all who are in need. Pause for a moment. Think about who around you is in a place of need. Who needs the grace that Jesus offered? See, Jesus at Levi's home is setting a banquet table, and it's an echo of Isaiah chapter 26, where Isaiah says, 
when God comes to redeem all things, he's going to set a banquet table and every tribe, nation, and tongue will be invited to the banquet. Those who are sick, those who are unclean, those who need healing emotionally, physically, spiritually, everyone is invited. And friends, the calling of Levi reminds us that the grace of God meets everyone who comes to that table. All who respond to God's gracious invitation. They're the ones who then Jesus meets. Those who simply say, Jesus, I need you. Not just in a salvific kind of way, but every hour of every day where we say to Jesus, Jesus, I need you today. I need fresh bread for today. I need fresh mercy for today. Are you willing, friend, to come to that table and say to Jesus, it's me, Lord. It's me. I'm the one standing in need of grace. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. It's me. I need you today. The worship team is coming, and they're going to lead us in songs of response. And our prayer team is moving to the back and putting on their name tags and today, our team is Allie and Dale and Anne-Marie and myself. And the thing that this text, Levi had a unique group of friends that no one else maybe was able to speak into and uniquely positioned to host that banquet for. And Levi said, I want you to come and see and meet Jesus, the person that I've met that has changed and is starting to change things about my life. These are the people that God is calling you and I to. And sometimes I wonder if we make it all too complicated and have to figure out all the strategies and the how-fors and the right words to say. One of the interesting things about a large study that was just concluded was this, that your friends who maybe aren't yet in a place where they're following Jesus need only two things from you. Number one, they need someone who will not judge them for their opinion. And number two, they need someone who will have an open conversation with them. And that's something that all of us can do. From students to senior adults. But there are people in your life that only you can have that conversation with. And so as the team leads us in songs of response, I want you to take some time to pray and ask God, God, who around me do I need to invite? Maybe you want to make your way to the sides in the back and have the prayer team join you in praying for those people. Because, friend, I am convinced that you are uniquely positioned to make a difference wherever you find yourself. And so this week, begin asking the question, God, where do you want me to step into those doors of conversation. What is the next step to invite a friend or associate of mine along to come and see? Might be opening, inviting them to come to our open house on April 5th where we kick the doors open and invite the whole neighborhood to come and see what we've been up to over the last number of months here. Might be your invitation to invite them to come to Easter Sunday on April 12th and witness the stories of God profoundly changing people's lives might be inviting them to attend an alpha course that Joel's just started up at the food bank. But remember, whatever that is for you, 
It's Jesus who is doing the calling through you. Jesus says, I have come. Not to call those who think that they are righteous, but for those who know that they are sinners. And our calling is to go and do likewise. I'd invite you to stand with me as we respond in worship to God.